Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. My name is Kathleen O'Sullivan and I am the host of this show. And together with a wide range of legendary leaders and experts in the field of leadership of self and others, we are going to explore concepts and ideas that show you how you can move past potential fears, negative self-talk and constant doubts in order to encourage you to becoming a legendary leader yourself with far more natural impact, influence and inspiration. We want you to be you, to be at your best and to show up in the most authentic way. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Hello and welcome back to today's show of Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Today, I am going to meet Natalie Kelly and she gives us some uh, brilliant insights into leading teams remotely that are spread across the globe, really. And for her, it's second nature. She has been doing it for a very, very long time. And therefore, it comes to her very, very naturally. And in her latest book that has been published on the 26th of September with the name Take Your Company Global, she's not only talking about, which is a very important topic, how you actually uh, going to take your company global, what are the thought processes you may need to go through and want to go through, what are the legislations, the um, tax matters that need to be considered. But she also talks about how to then lead teams, how to recruit the best talent in the local markets. And what kind of biases do we need to be very aware of when working more globally? In my own experience, I have worked within teams and with teams where there has been naturally a lot of bias because we are all biased. It doesn't mean it's always great and okay and it has the most positive impact on other people. 100% not. So therefore, it is so important that we focus on some of these biases. And over the last few years, when working with more global teams, I've noticed that certain individuals with a certain cultural background, perhaps who are no native English speakers, have been left a little bit on the outside, haven't been quite as included as other people or struggle to keep up and therefore kept themselves a little bit more in the background and we couldn't see them flourish. We couldn't see all of their talent. And that's just one teeny tiny example where it does make sense to think and act far more globally. And for a lot of us, me included, this is a huge learning curve, but a learning curve that can be hugely exciting for of our own growth and development and actually with a huge opportunity to build stronger, larger and wider communities. And Kelly is hugely passionate about enabling people to connect across borders of geography, language and culture. And she's dedicated to empowering business leaders to strategically expand internationally. So together with Kelly, we are going to be talking about the day-to-day -day business of a global leader, what to pay attention to, how to have meetings, how to communicate with your team members on a very customized basis, 
and much, much more. And most importantly, she gives us a wonderful brief insight and sneak peek into her latest book, Take Your Company Global. But let me tell you a little bit more about Natalie. Natalie Kelly is a seasoned business leader and you will without any doubt notice that pretty quickly. She's also an international business expert and longtime Harvard Business Review contributor on the topic of global business who is dedicated to empowering business leaders to strategically expand internationally. And she's currently the chief growth officer at Rebrandly, a company she's very proud to work for. It's a global software firm with customers in more than 100 countries. And previously, Kelly served at HubSpot as vice president of marketing, vice president of international operations and strategy and VP of localization, where she helped drive international expansion. To help business leaders expand internationally and gain a competitive advantage, Kelly has been launching Take Your Company Global, the new rules of international expansion. And she is the first author to detail the new realities of international expansion and share a comprehensive guide for businesses that seek to grow globally in a predictable, sustainable and effective way. So I cannot wait to share this episode with you. As always, I'm curious about your thoughts and feedback. So pop them over to me under cmc at kathleenmerkelcoaching.com. And for now, there's not much more to say, but enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome, Natalie. How are you today? Very well, Kathleen. How are you? Yeah, I am really, really good. It's quite late here now and I'm... Delighted that this day is coming to an end. It was a little bit mad, but at the same time, I'm always excited when my last appointment of the day is a great conversation. And given our brief pre-chat, I have no doubt that this is going to be insightful and inspirational for myself, selfishly, and the listeners too. Thank you so much. I'll do my best to make sure we leave your day on a high note. Oh, I have no doubts. So uh, <laughs> let's delve right into it. And thank you again for making the time because I can only imagine you are a very busy lady. You have a variety of roles in your life. Uh, and you're obviously the best person to introduce some of your roles um, that you represent at this point of time uh, to the listeners. So give us a, perhaps a brief intro. Sure. Well, my name is Natalie Kelly. I am Chief Growth Officer at Rebrandly, which is a software company headquartered in the United States and with offices in Ireland and Italy and many other parts of the world. I'm also an author of a new book coming out called Take Your Company Global, and I'm a mom of two beautiful young girls. And I'm missing a few bits and bobs there. Um, I don't <laughs> want to say, well, that wasn't enough. <laughs> so it wasn't, this isn't your first book, first of all. How many books have you written before? Yes, this is my third book. The most recent book before this was called Found in Translation. Mm -hmm. It was published by Penguin. And the prior book was called Telephone Interpreting. So this is my third book. Seems like every 10 years or so, I have the urge to write another book. <laughs> Yeah, and we are going to be talking about what drives you there, what motivates you. You also got uh, an engaging blog 
uh, which is is brilliant. I was delving into a few topics there. I'm nowhere near a content marketing expert at all, but you're really, really engaging in the way you're writing. You're writing for Harvard Business Review as well. And I was left thinking, how does she do it? And I know I'm not the only one asking you this question, but how do you do all of these things? <laughs> well, I don't do them all at the same time. <laughs> so, yes. you know, I write for Harvard Business Review once every so often, I think maybe once or twice a year. Mm -hmm. So that's not an ongoing thing. It's just whenever I have time to come up with a really good topic, I submit it and the editors there have kindly published a lot of my articles over the years. Same thing with my blog. I come and I go, <laughs> depending on how much time I have. There, there are times in my blog history where I didn't post for months. And then there are times where I'm posting every day. Kind of depends on what's going on in my life and what else I have cooking. <laughs> but yeah, I don't do all those things at the same time. And they kind of come in waves. So that's, that's definitely true. <laughs> and The last time you and I spoke, you were in Donegal, uh, Ireland, uh, spending time there and combining some personal time with the family with managing your, your teams, local teams, as well as the global teams and making sure you stay, well, quote unquote, on the ball uh, with work as well. And this is really the topic I would like to start with. This isn't your first role where you are leading teams more remotely. How long have you been doing so? Wow. So I've been actually leading remote teams since my first job in the 1990s at AT&T, back before we really thought about remote work. Back then it was called telecommuting because it was done over the phone before we had video conferencing. And AT&T happened to have most of the, you know, lots of access to the phone bridges. So they could easily enable teams to connect with phone lines easily any time of day. So I joined there uh, back right after I graduated from college as a Spanish interpreter. Mm -hmm. And we provided telephone interpreting services all over the world. What was very interesting is that we did everything remotely aside from meeting once a year in person. So I developed new hire training to train interpreters remotely over the phone. We would send out actual physical manuals, but we would you know, refer to them over the phone and do phone-based training. It wasn't so different from the way things are now. I would listen in on calls, shadow, mentor, coach my employees, my team members, and give them feedback and help them improve. And all that happened at a distance. This was within the United States and Puerto Rico, so it was all within mostly one country in the territory of Puerto Rico, but those folks were distant and remote from each other. So I've really been working in remote jobs since 1996. <laughs> What I hear fairly regularly, and I've heard years and years ago as well, is I feel very skeptical toward remote working. I need to see my people or lately post pandemic, we need to be together in order to be a real team and to communicate effectively. Now I, I look at your facial expressions there for the listeners who couldn't see Natalina, a little bit of positive eye rolling if that exists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really curious about your thoughts. 
Yeah, so I think everybody is a little too attached to one extreme on this topic. I think everybody is right, but everybody is a little bit too extreme when they say, I must have everybody in the office all the time, or I must do everything remotely because that's better for the workforce. I think, you know, we need to kind of understand what is right for the team and the individual and the company. So I do believe in-person interactions are very important for team building, for trust building, for morale building, for getting every certain types of work done, because you can brainstorm, you can draw on a whiteboard, you can understand more about people when you have the time to spend with them in person versus the one-off interactions that are more scheduled on Zoom where you're only seeing part of a person. There's so many benefits to that relationship, but there's also some drawbacks. So I don't think it's as simple as like everything should be remote or everything should be in person. Whenever I hear people talk that way, I feel like we're going in the wrong direction. I do feel though that different teams need different things. And I've seen in some companies where startups, they really need collaboration in person at that phase of growth because there's a lot of brainstorming. There's a lot of knowledge sharing. There's a lot of things happening that just happen faster in person. So depending on the type of company, depending on what they're doing, depending on the skills of the founders and the skills of the early hires, it might make more sense to be in person. But I've also seen startups that are fully remote and they do great and they thrive from a fully remote perspective. So I think a lot of it depends on the comfort level of the individuals involved with each type of work. And also when they're hiring, What's the comfort level that those folks have with in-person and remote? Do they need a hybrid? You know, I had on my team in my last job, many people who were remote and many people who were in an office, but I was a remote manager managing them all remotely. So some of them had the ability to go into the office, meet with peers, build relationships, have coffee, do the things that matter to them for building relationships with other teams. But on our team, We were remote first. So everything we did had to be accessible to everybody on the team who was remote or in person. So I believe instead of these kind of polar views on remote work, we need to think about remote first orientation of teams to enable the remote workers to thrive equally to in-office workers and to also give the in-office workers the ability to be remote when they need to be, because I think everybody learned in the pandemic that, oh, there are benefits to remote work. Maybe I just don't want to do it all the time. I'd like to have maybe the best of both worlds. And the other thing to consider is what someone's preferences are today might not be their preferences tomorrow. So even if someone says, I love going into the office because I don't have you know kids to take care of <laughs> and my schedule is much more flexible, or I don't have you know, a parent who's at home that I need to care for who's sick or something like that, they might be thinking, this is great. I can go in, I can socialize, I can do more things. I can go straight from the office to have drinks after work, whatever. But then what if their situation changes? They may need to have remote work. So my belief is everyone should have a remote first orientation. What if we have another pandemic? Mm-hmm. What if there is a situation like a natural disaster where everybody suddenly has to be remote? We need to think that way and build that way from the start, but give people the option to meet in person as well, depending on what makes sense for that team, that company, 
and where they are at in the life of their growth and their evolution. So I want the best of both worlds is what I'm saying. I want it all. (laughs) I want remote first orientation for everyone so that if they have to be remote, they can be remote without undue friction. But I'd love the remote teams to also have the option to meet people in person when it makes sense. And ideally for me, that's at least once a year with your core team, if possible, not always possible. I'm curious. Given that you have been leading teams remotely for such a long time, I can't even believe you have been in business for such a long time. And if I have read that correctly, you have received somewhat of an award uh, named Remote Work Influencer in January 2022. Wow. How, I mean, I come back to the point, how does one even get that title? Um, <laughs> however, Your experience is really what matters here right now, because I can imagine there are a few listeners, leaders out there who would like to see or have that approach of remote first, remote first orientation, but I don't even know how, how to take team members on board, how to understand what it is they truly need, what works for them and you as a leader and together as a team how to hire talent and identify talent in this remote world world where we suddenly have so many other opportunities to find talent, right? And so on and so forth. So it would be great to hear some of your experiences, insights, and top tips. Yeah. No pressure. Yeah, no problem. I mean, the reason I think uh, I was named one of the remote influencers is simply because I write a lot about it and I talked a lot about it in the pandemic because I saw a lot of people swinging back and forth on what they wanted to do. And so I think because I saw that and I saw a lot of misinformation out there and a a lot of things that I thought were being kind of taken out of context because pandemic remote work is not the same as normal remote work. So I wanted to reassure people that your experience in the pandemic was in a very charged, volatile situation. It's not the norm for remote work. A lot of people never experienced remote work other than pandemic remote work. So to answer your question on top tips, I think the number one thing that I like to recommend if people have never done remote work before is to start with one day, just designate a day when everybody's going to work remotely. That will force you to figure out some basic things about how to work remotely with your team. What works, what doesn't work? Do you have the systems in place that you need to collaborate remotely? What are the pain points? And then regroup and discuss, okay, let's pick another day where we're going to work remotely, but what do we do differently to make it easier next time? Because I think when the pandemic occurred, everyone was just thrown into it and kind of had to ad lib and they didn't have a chance to kind of slowly test and iterate. So if there's anyone out there who hasn't ever done any remote work or even has some pain points that they know that they don't like about it, I suggest talking with the team that you're on and trying to figure out, well, how do you handle that? What do you do about this aspect of remote work that you don't like? Because a lot of people feel like it's isolating, it's lonely, they lose track of time, they overwork, but there are strategies to prevent all of those things and to overcome all of those things. Some people can go into a, a remote, you know, like a co-working space, for example, if they don't like the feeling of isolation. Uh, sometimes you have to set an alarm to remind yourself to stop working. There's all kinds of tips and tricks, but I think you learn the best when you actually have to do it. And that gets you started on the right path. 
The other thing I like to recommend for managers who are dealing with remote teamwork is to really understand their team's communication preferences, because not everybody likes to be on a Zoom call where they have their camera on all the time. Some people might like to turn it off sometimes. Some people might prefer to use different tools. Like if you use Slack, one thing I use a lot with my team at Rebrandly is Slack Huddle. Mm -hmm. It's a feature where you can just jump into an audio call or a video call. And there's in some ways less of a an expectation that people will always turn on their video because it's usually just a quick connect. So I think a lot of times just understanding what are your preferences? You know, I, for example, if I'm getting my kids ready for school in the morning and I'm rushing around, I'm not going to be presentable. I'm happy to be in an audio call. (laughs) I can even be in an audio call sometimes, depending on the topic, while I'm getting ready. (laughs) But I'm not going to be showing my face on that call first thing in the morning uh, with my team in Europe. (laughs) No, I'm not going to. You will not see me. I will have my little photo up there. People can remember what I look like and just hear my voice. (laughs) But yeah, I think knowing like people's timeframes, what they have going on in their lives, what they're able to do when, which format works best for them at a different time of day. Just having a sense of that is super helpful, but a lot of people never ask. They don't even ask the question of what works best for you. Even the question of when are you most productive? What time of day are you most productive? That's an important question that a lot of managers don't even ask. But when you work remotely, that's actually very important because what if you could get more out of your team if you knew that these two people love to work at night? That's when their brains are on fire and they have all their creative power. Maybe you can align them with a time zone that's amenable to that. Or early birds, maybe they want to work a specific time zone because their brain is on fire early in the morning and they don't have to work the nine to five schedule. That's one of the things I love about remote work. You can flex, you can make it fit the needs of your life instead of viewing it as a constraint where like, oh, I'm glued to my computer all day. Why not just say, you know what, my most productive time of day is 11 p.m. And I want to do a couple hours at night and I'll take a couple hours off in the morning and I can flex my schedule. This is the way I think people should be thinking about remote work as an as a life enabler. <laughs> I, I love what you were saying there. I actually uh, work with teams quite often on that topic of productivity, well-being and so on. And quite often we say, when are you most productive? And you can literally see in the facial expressions, they've never been asked this question. And the initial response is, yeah, but we can't just do that because of customers. They need us at that time. And I'm not saying this is incorrect. Absolutely not. There are certain industries, certain time zones where you have less of that flexibility and you have to be on and serve your customer. And we are going to be talking about that as well in a moment. But actually thinking about your productivity levels and where you have somewhat flexibility is, from my perspective, really, really important because there's always some wriggle room, even if it's a small bit. I agree. And like if even if customers are online during certain times of day, maybe there's an opportunity for them to do certain other work at night or in the morning or whatever, you know, that it just, I think we sometimes are not thinking creatively enough about our work schedules and how remote work could enable us different schedules, different shifts. I feel like a lot of folks when remote work took off, they were looking at metrics like, oh, they're only connected for six hours a day. 
but they weren't similarly looking at, well, what happens in the office when they're walking around talking to people or they're gossiping in the hallway? Nobody's counting that as non-productive work because they know they're in the office and there's this sense of, oh, we control them. But in my case, when I was, you know, working with a, a large global team in my last job, if you had looked at just the time I was connected to my computer, that would not give the full picture at all because I might be walking and doing a WhatsApp call with somebody about a topic that we're brainstorming on. And if I'm walking, maybe I get more creative ideas. So I did a lot of different communication channels and different types of calls with my team at different hours of the day, Mm -hmm. where if you got the full picture, you might think, oh, wow, she's actually connected a lot more than just what the data shows. So when I would see reports coming out of like, oh, the average worker's productivity has dropped because, and then I look at the details of what they're measuring and they're looking at things that when they're in the office, they don't even look at. They're not, when you're in the office, they're not looking at how, are are you sitting at your computer the whole eight hours? No, you're, people are taking coffee breaks. People are walking across the street for lunch. People are doing all kinds of things that are not directly related to their work, but there's no equivalent metric there for how the remote workers were being measured. So that to me is not even a fair and accurate depiction of how people are defining productivity. (laughs) Oh, goodness me, we could probably have a separate um, podcast recording on this topic. Because there are so many additional factors based on what you just mentioned. Can you be productive if you were to sit for eight hours straight in front of your screen? We all, I think, know No, you can't. Your Mm -hmm. brain switches off. I mean, there's different research out there, but on average, after 90 minutes, let's have a break. Let's, Mm -hmm. you know, our brain is just not productive anymore. doesn't have the capacity to take information in. The other thing is also about how do you want people to operate? Do you want them to operate on a basis that feels empowered, creative, innovative? And that means goodness me, you have to remove yourself from that screen. As you said, you might want to walk around and, you know, get your juices up there going. Mm -hmm. Um, And other different people need different things. So I used to work with a leader who always said, I focus on output as to whether you sit in front of your screen all the time or and you need to, um, you know, have calls constantly just to prove to yourself that you have done work. That's your stuff. I'm happy to help you with it, but it's your stuff. But from my perspective, you don't need it. And that really stuck with me. Yes, I totally agree. Outcomes and outputs are what matter the most. And overall contributions to the team. And to be honest, there are some people who are very experienced and can have the same output in a much shorter amount of time. If they're being paid the same amount, as somebody else who it takes eight hours to do the same job. I don't care if it only takes them two hours. They should be paid the same. The outcomes are the same, you know? So that is the way I view it as well. I don't care if they're taking off every day and going for a 10 mile run, if that is during their workday, as long as they're getting the results that the company has put into the job description and communicated to them, these are the expectations. That's what really matters. And the other point you mentioned was the camera. Loved that you mentioned that again, because I talk to leaders very frequently about a topic called uh, micro messages, right? Mm -hmm. 
microaffirmations, microaggressions, what can have a negative or what microbehaviors can have a positive or negative behavior on others. And in this Western European culture, so I am um, going back and forth between Germany and the UK, but I work fairly globally. And in the Western European culture, what I uh, hear quite often is, I see not switching on the camera as a real microaggression. I personally, and I'm doing workshops all the time virtually, I do not care because I trust people who are interested and want to be there to be there and to be engaged and whatnot. And if they want to leave their camera off, so be it, right? Uh, And I find that reaction really, really interesting. So have you had any particular reactions to camera on, off? And um, what do you notice within your team? Do they feel comfortable with this approach? You can have them on or off. And yeah, just curious. I mean, I try to lead by example and make sure that they see me turning off my camera pretty often because I don't want that to ever be a blocker for anyone for any reason. Yeah, I think it's weird that people might perceive it as a microaggression if people turn their camera off, frankly, because it's actually in some cultures a sign of respect for the person speaking. And I've seen in certain meetings where everyone turns their camera off when the main presenter is speaking or when someone else is. But in a lot of cultures, especially in the U.S., the expectation is everybody must be paying attention and therefore they have to be on screen and they have to be doing something. But again, it's that notion of control, right? And how much do we trust people? Yeah. Because I think there's that, it's kind of like watching people in the office and forcing them to be in the office. It's similar to having that desire to control them and want them to always be on display for you on camera. And I almost view it as like the reverse. It's almost a microaggression to force employees to be on camera all the time. What if that person is in pain, suffering from an illness, and is totally happy to absorb the information and listen in if it's a meeting where they're not doing any talking. Why should they have to be on camera for that? They could be communicating in the chat. They could be communicating in other ways. Why do they have to be on camera just for you to have the pleasure of seeing their face? Like, I don't get it. To me, it's almost the the reverse. And I would actually say for introverts in particular, they might not want to be on camera all the time and see their face on screen. It could be very jarring to constantly see their face all the time in a meeting. And maybe they prefer to tune out and listen. You know, sometimes if you're in really deep thought, you might look away from the person talking to think about what they're saying. It can actually be a sign of respect that, you know, I'm not looking at you. I'm listening to you. I'm trying to hear what you're saying. And The reason I think that's so important is because having come from that background of AT&T where we did everything over the phone, we never saw each other in person. I can say you can have very efficient meetings, trainings, conversations just with audio only. So that's one reason why I feel like in-person interaction is great and desirable when you can use it for team building and things like that. But video I'm not so sure it's as valuable as people think to have a video feed on top of an audio because you and I could be having this conversation with audio only, and I'm sure it would play out very, very similarly. The only thing is you want to see me when I roll my eyes about people saying, everybody get 
the office. <laughs> there is, of course, a visual element to communication, but I think it's underestimated how much can be done with audio alone. And I do think in those group meeting settings, we need to have more flexible mindsets and not assume, oh, that person turned the camera off so they're not listening. They're doing something else behind the scenes. Often they might be your most intent listeners. Maybe they're taking notes and they don't want it to be distracting that they're, you know, there's a million reasons why people might turn off their camera. Absolutely. And to add to that, internet issues. As soon as the camera is on um, and everybody keeps it on, in particular with Teams, I experienced that lately, literally the whole workshop breaks down. And exactly. I say, you know what? If that's the risk, let's just keep them off and have a great conversation. It's a very valid reason. And I just want it to be the norm that people can show up to any meeting, camera on, camera off, doesn't matter. Unless they're like holding up something that people need to see. I don't understand why they need to be on screen. Like, physically and visually. <laughs> the point you made about trust is actually one that's being mentioned quite often. Not I don't trust my people, but reasons such as, well, people usually do something else. Mm-hmm. They don't feel then accountable to truly listen. Where I challenge, obviously, is that something you know for sure? Is that something that are, you are assuming? Where does that assumption come from? Yes. Where is that rooted in yourself? Yeah. Well, the other thing I would ask is, why aren't they paying attention? Is it because what you're talking about should have been an email? Is it because maybe you're not engaging them? Like, why are you having the meeting in the first place that they can tune out? Could you just send them your slides? Could you send them a Loom video? Could you send them, you know, an audio message on Slack? Like, why are they able to tune out? Is it not essential for them to be there? Why did you invite them? You know, there's a lot of questions beneath it when people kind of complain, well, they might be doing something else instead of paying attention. Well, maybe you're not using the right communication vehicle to get their attention in the first place. Absolutely. Fair points. Um, and love that someone else likes to use Loom videos and just to send some succinct messages over to the people to keep them informed. Yeah, I, I am a fan of all tools that help us that way with collaborating. I use Zoom recordings and just send those or Looms if I'm presenting things sometimes. And I, I will use any and every tool for collaboration. <laughs> Me too. And you know what? The beauty of those is, and I actually love receiving them as well. Because I can choose as to whether I want to watch it, as to whether I want to uh, read through the transcript, as to whether I want to listen to that while going for a walk. I can, you know, choose my own medium and time to catch up on them. And that's brilliant. I love that. That's one of the features I do love with Loom is the automated transcript, even if it's not perfect. Same thing with Slack audio messages. If you leave an audio message it will generate the transcript, which is super helpful. My team and I use this all the time. One-to-one communications, if you're busy and you're traveling, like I was recently when we talked before when I was in Donegal, flying to Rome, flying back to the US, flying to Scotland, flying all over the place, I was able to just simply start the recording, leave a bunch of thoughts for the person on whatever the topic was. They can read it while they're taking the Lewis home, you know, in Dublin or whatever. Mm. It just having that diversity of options is so key, as is having diversity of options, like even with the tools, like some people, I they, they love WhatsApp. And so I am open to using whatever channel. 
And sometimes if Slack isn't working, we default to WhatsApp. Just having the options is super important, I think, especially when you're managing remote teams and global teams. And and there is an additional aspect to that, Natalie. And again, curious to hear about your experience, language barriers. So I am not a native English speaker, as you can hear. However, I work with global teams from Asia to the US, South America, and so on. I sometimes struggle to understand all the different nuances in the accents and dialects, and so do they with me or other colleagues on the call. And while I'm not a, I, I'm, I don't think every AI um, translation transcript tool is necessarily perfect. It gives a great opportunity to make sense of what has been said and to give people the opportunity to follow, to a large extent at least. And I think that's a necessity nowadays to have this option because we cannot expect that every member in my more global team now understands every single accent that is available across the United States and in other places in the world. So what's your view here, uh, your view on transcription, translations, and getting those language barriers supported? Yes, it's so important. I was just in a meeting yesterday with a colleague of mine who was in the United States, and we were slacking a couple messages to somebody in our Italy office who we know doesn't have very strong English, but I think temporarily we forgot because obviously he was using a translation tool to answer the questions on Slack, which was great. But we would, it changed our communication style. We wrote in very simple, yes, kind of yes or no questions that were easy to understand. So we would be very clear about, like we took more time to think before we wrote anything. And then I I said, would it be easier if we jump on a call real quick to talk through this? And he immediately said, no, I prefer writing. And then I remembered, oh, that's right. He doesn't speak enough English that he'd be comfortable talking through this because it was a complicated issue Mm. that had systems implications, but it would be fine to do it on Slack where he could read, digest, process, translate, come back to us and translate his answer back into English. Mm. And that is why I think it's important to remember certain types of meetings might not be the best for all people. And so having that diversity of communications is key, especially for people who speak multiple languages. You know, one thing I often will say to people who have team members who do not speak the same language as them natively is to make sure to ask them what their preferences are with language, because sometimes people are totally fine to read something, but they don't feel comfortable speaking, or they can understand their comprehension is high in English, for example, but they might not want to speak or they speak fine, but they can't write in English, you know? So the writing part has solved itself through a lot of tools that we have now that you can just, you know, through ChatGPT, just throw it in and say, fix my English. (laughs) It will write it in whatever style you want. But the listening part is harder. And the speaking part is the hardest, in my opinion, to 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 leverage tools for, because you if you're listening, you might be able to get a transcript, translate the transcript. But when you have to speak, that's the biggest barrier if you don't feel comfortable speaking in another language, because there aren't many tools that can do that for you automatically without a lot of training and a lot of 
investment of time and sometimes resources. So there are, it's important to ask the question and some companies even test their entire staff on this. They'll test them in proficiency for each language so that they know, oh, their their English, you know, their spoken proficiency is high, but their comprehension in written language is low, you know, all of these different variations. It's important to know that because that way you can plan how you communicate with those folks. Sometimes you might even need an interpreter if it's something where you need to speak back and forth to them. And there are now video interpreting tools like Kudo, KUDO is one. They can provide an interpreter live anytime. Language Line, which is that division of AT&T that I used to work at, they do audio interpreting, but they also do video interpreting for a lot of languages. So there are tools out there that enable real-time collaboration. It's just not totally perfect yet. <laughs> that that leads me back to the topic of recruitment in this mm -hmm. global world and uh, builds the first segue towards your latest book um, that is has already been published when this show is going to be released. Publishing date is the 26th of September. That's right. If yep. I remember that well. Mm -hmm. Congratulations uh, on the book, by the way. I really can't wait to have a read, and I'm going to tell you why in a moment. Uh, coming back to recruitment, I often wonder how we can strike the balance between making use, and I mean, in the most positive sense, of this global talent that's available to us nowadays, and according to you, has always been somewhat available. Um, some of us just have realized that a little bit later. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, making sure we recruit the most suitable talent for that role. Given language barriers, given that we not that we may not be able to get to know someone as in, in the same way as we would get to know somebody who sits next to us in the office, who speaks exactly the same language, comes from the same back cultural background. How do you do that? What's your experience with it? This is a very tough one because I'm sure, Kathleen, you've heard of familiarity bias. Mm -hmm. And one version of that is language bias. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when we hear people who have the same accent as us or they remind us of ourselves in some way because they speak the same language or even the same dialect of a language, we instantly feel a bond to them. Similarly, when they have a barrier and they speak English as a second language, it creates some distance and it creates some bias in the opposite direction. It's almost like unfamiliarity bias or fear of the unknown. And so when people do not speak the same language as you or I do natively, we often tend to have assumptions about them that we might not even be consciously aware of. So when we're recruiting, it's very important to make that bias explicit to everyone who's part of the hiring process, because what typically will happen is no matter what the job is, if you're a native English speaker, for example, no matter what the capabilities are and no matter how good the candidates are, you will choose the person with the best English because your familiarity bias plays in. And so you sort of Part of, it's a twofold thing. One of it, one of the pieces here is that candidate with lesser proficiency in English might not be able to explain why they are a good fit for the role, and they might not be able to actually demonstrate as clearly as 
another person could, why they are a good fit and why they know the topic, have the skills, are a good fit for the company. So it's a very common thing, especially when people, for example, I first learned about this when we were opening up an office in Japan in my last job. And the folks I was working with at Jetro, the Japanese development agency, kind of like the IDA in Ireland, but for Japan, Mm -hmm. they told me, beware of English bias. This is a common thing. People will hire the person with the best English, not the best person for the job. Over and over we see it. And it's a very hard thing to overcome because you can only evaluate people based on how they express themselves and the rapport you can build with them. And that's very hard when you don't share a common language and when that other person is not proficient enough in the same language as you. So it's a really tough one. What I always advise is, Interview them in their native language, if you can. Even if you have to pull somebody who just speaks that language, give them the questions, have them ask, have them give you the feedback. Because if they're only interviewed by people who don't speak their native language, it can be a real detriment to the process because you might miss out on a fantastic candidate. The other thing is, if you have language requirements, they need to be explicit. If they are going to need to speak a, their their second language or a foreign language every single day, that needs to be part of the job requirement. It needs to be very clear. However, if they can get by without speaking that, then try to err on the side of having more people who speak their language interview them. This might sound very basic, but it's actually something that companies forget to do. They're, they'll interview somebody who's from, you know, maybe a Spanish speaker from Latin America, and they only have English speakers talk to them. And never once were they interviewed in their native language. (laughs) So I think it's important to think about those things as part of the recruiting process for sure. Actually, I haven't thought about that. Isn't that crazy? That that's the best way you can actually get most out of this interview, learn more about the person, and as you said, give them also a comfort to feel more like themselves and to express themselves in a natural way of communicating. Yes. And when you think about diversity and how important it is for candidates to see people like themselves in the process, it also gives them exposure to hopefully another person at the company who speaks the same language as them, maybe comes from the same background, ethnically, geographically, you know, so that they don't feel, uh, would I be joining a company where I'm the only one like me? (laughs) Or would there be some other people like me where I could fit in? So yeah, it's, it's a common thing that most companies don't even think about. They just have a lot of, you know, in in my case, I default to English because I'm in an English speaking country, but like American companies are notorious for that. They might have a person who speaks the language sitting right next to them, who's on the same team and just forget to put them in the process. Today's podcast is sponsored by Inner Professional Online Training Programs. With courses geared specifically for legendary leaders, Inner Professional provides an extraordinary catalog of leadership and professional development programs unlike any online training you've experienced before. Hone your conscious and authentic leadership skills with peer group, networking communities, direct engagement with life experts, and a wealth of compelling, easy to engage on demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash innerprofessional.
And thank you for mentioning diversity, but also I'm going to highlight equity here. Yes. You know, getting people to a level where they actually have equal opportunities, equity first. Now, remember in our pre-chat, you mentioned the necessity not to have headquarters. Yeah. And I think I shared with you that I felt sometimes I had more better opportunities because I was headquarter based. I had visibility, other people had visibility of me and so on and so forth. You get easily involved in certain projects, off you go whereby I see so many amazing people across the globe, but they are not headquarter based. So it may feel harder to them to actually progress. And you gave a brilliant example there with regards to no headquarters. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So in the book, I actually profile a company called Dashlane. And at Dashlane, they got rid of the notion of headquarters, of having a global headquarters. And I thought this was brilliant. And I wrote about it in the book, wrote a case study in the book about this, because I think it removes the notion that one country is better than another, or that one country is more power than another, or that one country is the default, so to speak. So it's a tricky one, right? Because in a lot of forms, we have to indicate what our headquarter country is. And, you know, it's, I I just filled out one the other day and I was, you know, had to fill out which headquarter location uh, we wanted to appear in in a specific place. But I love the notion that this company at Dashlane actually went to their employees to say, there is no global headquarters. Well, we're all part of the same team here. Everyone is contributing and has an important role to play here, we're not going to attach some sort of stigma to being outside of our headquarter location. We're just going to abolish the whole notion of a headquarter location. Now, in reality, often the polarity will follow, say, the CEO or you know the, the nexus of power, I should say, or what people perceive to be the power can follow the founders, can follow the CEO, can follow different people. But when you have a diverse team, for example, like every Brandley, our leadership team is based in many different countries. So you can't just say, well, that's what the U.S. team thinks. Well, no, that's not that's not the case. And there would be somebody on the leadership team from Italy and somebody on the leadership team in the U.K. and somebody on the leadership team in the U.S. So, you know, there's multiple people who are making key decisions at the executive level. But that also helps anybody who's located in any of those different countries or countries where they have no executive to feel that they are a part of the same system, a part of the same team. And I think that's really, really important for people to feel connected and feel like they have an equitable experience. That's another thing I write about in the book is this notion of a globally equitable organization. And I really believe that this is something that companies can achieve by making sure that their employees and their customers have an equitable experience. I think too often everyone tries to give folks around the world an identical experience when that's not really what they want and not really the easiest thing to do either. I think sometimes we overcomplicate and say, oh, let's roll out that program in every country. Do we even know if they want that program in that country? Is the question I usually ask. Because it's fine if that's it was invented in this country, fine for that country, but it doesn't mean that they even want that in this other country. So we shouldn't assume 
that what we think is a good experience in one part of the world is going to also deliver a great experience for an employee or a customer in another part of the world. Ah, and that's this beautiful segue into the customer orientation, a topic I know you are passionate about. And you mentioned the internal as well as the external customer here. How much have you also in your past roles considered the customer? I think that's almost a redundant question, but how did you do that? So I've always been a big fan of surveying and getting feedback from customers. And I think talking to customers is the number one thing that everyone should do. as often as they can and in as many ways as they can to build relationships with customers. And this sounds obvious at first because you would think, well, ever, doesn't every company talk to their customers? It's amazing how often the customers are just there under the surface and they're actually not even asked any questions. Like, what can we do better? What do you like about us? How do you define the category we're in? You know, talking to customers is the number one most important thing. And so that extends to serving them, you know, getting feedback from them in, you know, in app, if you're a software company running surveys, like NPS surveys, things like that, but also on different topics. So I think the same applies no matter what your methods are for getting information and building relationships with your customers, you need to consider how you do that in different languages in different countries. So one thing I did in a past, in a past role was to basically ask every customer in different parts of the world, what's your level of satisfaction? A simple CSAT type survey with our company, and then look at it by region and by language and by country. So that way I could tell, you know, are the customers in this country significantly more satisfied than the customers in this other country? Now it starts to get tricky because when you look at surveys and how people respond, the behaviors are different culturally. So like in some countries, people will never give you a 10 out of 10. And in others, they will almost always give you a 10 out of 10. <laughs> so you can't assume just because in Latin America, every it looks like the scores are very good, that the experience is very good. And similarly, if the scores are much lower in Japan, it doesn't always mean that the Japanese experience is worse. <laughs> it's Definitely an indicator, but what I like to look at is if you repeat that type of survey, are you improving it? You know, what does the ongoing improvement look like? You should be raising the score in all countries, in all languages. In other words, don't assume that one country is your benchmark. Assume that wherever they are at is their benchmark and that you need to just constantly work to improve it in each place. And that is how you will improve customer experience everywhere. That's my simple solution. Not so simple to explain. <laughs> I I actually fully agree with you with regards to I don't actually or you can't believe how many organizations don't talk to their customers. I've experienced it in the past when I was in management leadership roles. Uh, and I'm experiencing it now more from a consultant perspective when we talk about the customers and it's everything is great. We have a great relationship. And then we give projects even with regards to the customers and we invite the customers to certain events and the customer really opens up. They're like, where's that coming from? We didn't know. And and my thinking phase that the listeners couldn't see uh, a moment ago was related to don't we have an opportunity to do everything you've explained earlier on? Pick up the phone, go for a walk, call up a client. 
in the same way as we would do it with our teams. Yes. And probably a pushback I would receive is, yeah, I don't have time for that. I, I can't even get my one-to-ones with my team members in. But how valuable would it be? How much more would we gain from it in terms of relationship building, understanding, customizing services and products, loyalty, whatever it is? What else are we missing out on by not focusing on the customers? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think the same applies to employees. Are we actually asking employees what they like? And it goes back to that earlier point of, are we asking them what their communication preferences are? Are we asking them what time of day they like to work? Are we asking them if they want to come into an office or not? You know, just asking the questions is the vast majority of the work. People are ready to tell us the answers, but sometimes we come in with our preconceived ideas. Like you mentioned at the start, I believe everybody should come into the office, says the manager sitting in the office, not thinking about what the employees might like. Mm. (laughs) Same thing talking to your customers. We think we know what the customers want, but do we really? Have we asked the question? Are we talking to them? Are we building the relationships? Do we even have empathy for our customers? Do we have empathy for our employees? (laughs) Those are important questions to ask. And I think the reason this gets harder when you go global is because you have to do it more and you have to do it in more ways in more languages in more countries so the complexity does increase and so i think the companies that are generally not doing enough of this feel it even more when they go global because it becomes more visible and the pain becomes more acute when you multiply it by a factor of 50 countries so let's talk about your book launching, I want to say, now that it's still August on the 26th of September, as I said, this podcast will be released after it has been launched. And the title is Take Your Company Global. I think I said in the pre-chat to you, I'm really curious about reading it because I love working globally, but I also have a ton of respect for it, of respect for this global workforce leading a global workforce, not knowing the markets enough language barriers, all those complexities. And I'm now talking myself out of it already. Um, <laughs> but what, what is your, what's the purpose of the book? Why did you write it? So I really believe that there are so many amazing companies out there that could benefit customers in different parts of the world. And they don't even know what the potential is. And they're focused on their home market, but before they know it, their business could grow and they could reach other people in other markets. And it's better to start preparing for that now and do it intentionally than do it reactively after your business has reached a certain point. So what I'm talking about in the book is mostly how to do international expansion, build a global company in the digital age, because I think a lot of things have changed. But the underlying purpose of the book is really to help connect people, to help connect businesses to customers in other countries that might need their services and products, to help those exact same organizations reach employees who might be perfect to work for them. I just feel the world is very separated still, And there's no really good reason for it in my mind. Mm. If companies start to understand more about 
how to go global today, how to expand internationally in different ways, because I think everybody is still kind of molded to the old way of doing things, which was we have to have a very comprehensive plan for how we go global and we're going to invest this many dollars in launching in a new country. And it sounds like a very big, scary endeavor when in reality, today companies go global much more continuously and incrementally. And I want everybody to know that's okay. And that's actually the way you should be doing it today. <laughs> so don't be scared if suddenly you wake up and you have 20%, 30% of your revenue from outside your home market. That's actually happening to a lot of companies today. And then the question is, what do you do to make the most of that? How do you intentionally lean into specific markets? How do you choose which markets to lean into in the first place? Yeah. That's what the book covers because I feel like we have so much potential to connect brands with consumers, companies, software products with users, businesses with employees all across the world. But there's a lot of fog in the way of people figuring out how to do it. And so that's the whole goal of this book is to clear the fog, make it easier for people to have a simple way to go about doing this in the digital age. If you had the conversation that I keep having every year with my accountant about where income streams are coming from and how to tax for the different legislations, you might sometimes be a bit hesitant <laughs> to think about where you're going to go, <laughs> but it's yes. too much fun. <laughs> well, that's market, right? So that's actually a great example, Kathleen, of something that I talk about in the book. People think, oh, there's this many customers in this market, so we should go into that market. But they're not thinking about the tax consequences. Mm -hmm. Do they even have the right currency? If they pay in this currency versus that currency, is the tax liability greater? What's the best way for us to address that market? Should we go through a reseller? And maybe they, you know, they're the ones dealing with a lot of the regulatory issues and local taxes and all of that. And, you know, there's just so many options, but that's actually one of them that I highlight because you're very right to call out that that's a consideration that a lot of people are surprised by after their business starts getting a little traction. Then they're like, oh, let's let's lean into this. And then they, they're hit later with, oh, you mean I owe that much in taxes for this market? Oh, I didn't realize the currency exchange rate was going to be that impactful on my overall revenue. And all these different things start to come into play. So what I'm giving them in the book is a framework that they can use to think about these things before they overinvest in a country that might not actually be the best fit for them, or maybe they're not operationally prepared for it yet because they haven't thought through taxes, currency, entity. Do we have an accountant in that country? Do we have a lawyer in that country? That Can, can we offer benefits in that country? There's a lot to think through, and so it does get overwhelming, but I'm giving people a standard framework that they can use to ask those types of questions to decide which country they should go into. Because sometimes it's as obvious as go into the ones that are part of the same trade agreements or the same, you know, same currency or the same language. Sometimes it's not so obvious. Sometimes it's actually based on what we sell, the, the largest population of those, plus the ones we think we can sell to based on the type of economy and so on, it's going to be one that is a totally different language. So we're going to have to invest a lot 
in that aspect. So having a framework helps people understand, oh, I can score these on a 10 point scale and get a quick answer. Yeah, you can. <laughs> and I'm giving them the tools in the book to do that, to make it easier so that it doesn't get so overwhelming. Where does your understanding of all these different pieces of the puzzle come from? Yes, you work globally, you lift abroad in a variety of countries. I'm just curious to know taxation backgrounds, market understanding, and so on and so forth. How did yeah. you get there? Well, when I was in a prior job, uh, I worked as a consultant for global companies, and we worked. We had I worked at a market research firm that specialized in this, so I learned a ton when I was working there, and I saw a lot of the pains and tribulations that companies go through to make international business a success. Uh, when I was at HubSpot, I also led international expansion efforts as one of my jobs that I did there for a while. So setting up the office launch process there, I had to consider all the different aspects of preparing for basically building a large presence in a new market. And that included everything from legal entity setup, employment contracts being created, understanding local benefits, taxes, tax strategy, commission structure, you know, which team member is going to be in charge of closing the business versus renewing it? Which country are they going to be in? How does that affect the taxes? Um, now, I am not a tax specialist, but I had fortunately a team of folks who either were themselves or could coordinate with people in country, you know, local third party specialists. Uh, also on the legal front, I'm not a lawyer, but I had the fortune of working with people who either knew about those topics or could source the right answers. And then all the other pieces, facilities, you know, finding the, the office space, mm -hmm. because back then everything was more in person <laughs> and all of the down, all the downstream things, the, the launch itself, you know, which is kind of the easy part. <laughs> uh, just having a launch event is like maybe 1% of the work that goes into launching in a new country. Uh, but just kind of like with a book launch, <laughs> the launch is like 1% of the total amount of promotion and work that you do. But I think getting the exposure to so many different functions really helped me. You know, I worked with finance to come up with the financial targets and the cost, you know, and understand that facilities team, legal team, you know, taxes, sales, marketing, customer success, all of it. Uh, to build a comprehensive plan and then to enable us to basically repeat that plan for every new office that we launched after that uh, was part of my job. So I, I was very lucky I had that job and I got to learn a ton in the process. At the same time, I find it fascinating um, how you seem to me like someone who literally absorbs information like a sponge, <laughs> who is observant and has an interest in internal as well as external customers, really to understand where are they coming from, why are they making certain decisions. As I said, it's really um, fascinating to observe that in you. Oh, <laughs> thank you. I, I just, I am curious. I'm yeah. curious about how companies succeed what makes them successful ultimately, and also what makes a global company successful. I think there's a lot of key ingredients that go into it. 
And so I'm always fascinated to learn more. And I constantly learn more as much as I would love to think I'm a sponge absorbing things. There's, there's always more water (laughs) all around and I can't absorb it all. (laughs) So I'm lucky. I have a lot of contacts in this space who are specialists in say Japan or Korea or Latin America or, you know, different countries within Latin America. Every country is so different it's overwhelming how much knowledge is out there for us to tap into. And I feel like I have only scratched this, the very, very thin surface, (laughs) but I'm happy to give folks what I've learned back in the form of my book, because I feel like this could save you a lot of challenges. And I spent all these years learning this. Maybe you don't have to take all that time. You'll learn your own lessons about your company and how you take it global. That'll be unique to you but you might as well fast track and take what I know (laughs) and leverage it for yourself. So that's why I've written all three of my books is if I learn a topic and I think it could be useful to someone else, I like to share what I've learned and put it out there for others to benefit from. Yeah. And thank you for doing so. I will benefit from it. I promise. What what are those key ingredients for successful global organizations? If you can just share your top three. So I have a few in the book that I talk about. I think the two that I'll come to that I think are the most important are this notion of linguistic inclusion and geoagnosticism. Sorry to use two more big fancy words here, but... <laughs> um, Linguistic inclusion, by that, what I mean is making sure that you are enabling things to offer linguistically inclusive experiences to employees and to customers. So some of the things we were talking about before, Kathleen, with language barriers, with employees, you know, giving them access to tools and things to make that easier. Same is true for customers. How are you overcoming those barriers with your customers if you don't speak the same language as your customers? So making sure that you have linguistic coverage to enable them to access your company in the same way that they would if language were not a barrier or at least getting equitable access. It doesn't mean it has to be the same exact pathway for every single group, but if they have the same access that makes them feel like they're having a good experience. I think that's linguistically inclusive. And I don't just mean they're offering other languages. I also mean making sure the language you use, even in one language, is accessible, easy to understand, can be accessed by people with different disabilities, that you're thinking about diversity of communication styles, methods, channels for all of your customers in a given market. So that's the linguistic side. The other side of it, I think, is what I call geoagnosticism. And by that, I mean, kind of like the example we talked about with Dashlane, we're not going to be tied to a specific country. We want to be agnostic in terms of which country we orient to. We don't want to have a specific orientation. We want to be more free of one specific geography dictating our decisions. So. The way to enable that, in my opinion, is to bring in diverse viewpoints from the start. So if you have a group of people in Boston, where I'm based, you're going to have a very Bostonian viewpoint. If that's the only group that's making the decisions, they might be thinking about, oh, 
the winters are hard in Boston. So therefore we won't do it in this. We won't have this event on this date because we might have a nor'easter and the snow might prevent us from having that event. Very Bostonian mentality based on Bostonian realities. But if you bring in, if you're planning a global event and you're thinking, let's bring in somebody from our French office, let's bring in somebody from our Columbia office, and let's have them decide when the best date is. They might pick something that actually is the winter because maybe it's better for them where that never would have been a consideration if all the decisions were made in Boston. And then maybe they'll come up with a suggestion of why don't you do a local event in Boston and we do a local event for other countries in this on this other time. Like it just opens the conversation up to more diverse ways of thinking about the problem. So that's what I mean by geoagnosticism, not rooting decisions in one country's framework. And I believe you can do that intentionally by just looking at the people making the decision and saying, are we all from the same place? It's kind of like with anything with diversity. Are we all white men making this decision? (laughs) Should we have a person of color in the room? Should we have a woman in the room? Maybe we should think about improving our diversity at the decision-making table. Same thing with geodiversity. And I can't wait for a few more ingredients there. But the thought that just came up for me was it requires, first of all, psychological safety. I know that's a term that's being spoken about a lot. It's nothing new anymore out there, but so important. And I think it's it's absolutely important what you are saying to be more agnostic towards different geographies, basically, and to really hear those diverse views. But if I'm not willing to share my very individual views because I don't trust the person or I haven't even had a chance to get to know them because no one is being communicating with me. I don't feel communicated to or heard. Then that is a real challenge. I just think that before you even step into that space of now we go global, it's important to think about who am I as a leader as well? Who are we as leader, as a leadership team? What's our overall company culture are we living that or does it need change and and really start again with those fundamentals yes and we talked about recruiting a little bit but in the book I talk about the importance of recruiting people with international experience as early as you can because they will if they're not already part of your leadership team they may be your future leaders Ideally, you are lucky enough that you have some leaders with international experience, but if not, that's something you can intentionally do to bring into a team. Bring somebody with a background that isn't just from the same country that everybody else is from. (laughs) It will dramatically start to shift the overall thinking of the team. And even in your hiring, in your job specs, you can put something like international experience desired or international experience is a plus. On every single job spec, if you're serious about going global, why not? You know, it's a bonus and it will maybe attract the right people who think, ooh, they care about international experience. They value that. That's something they're looking for. Maybe I should talk about that in the interview process. Maybe I should bring that up as something I bring to the company. So often companies are going global and they don't even think to add that in their job descriptions. They don't even think to hire for it intentionally. They're just kind of hiring for the role and whoever they get, they get. But that's an important ingredient to start hiring for as early as you can so that it enables you to then hire more people with international experience and diverse backgrounds and diverse experience from all over the world. 
I absolutely love that for so many reasons. Yeah, 100%. One last ingredient you want to share with us? I think you hit on it already, Kathleen, which is psychological safety. Like none of this works if you don't build trust with people. And if you don't have that relationship where people feel like they can contribute, it's all grounded in that. Like none of it will work unless that is there. So I do believe that is extremely important. In the book, I call that empathy. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's different from psychological safety, but I think that's the closest tenet that I have there is truly understanding and caring about your customers, your employees, your internal customers, as you say, making sure that you understand their points of view and weaving those in and making sure that that lays a strong groundwork for psychological safety. So I think that is another key ingredient in the mix. Thank you for sharing those. And I think it's needless to say, get the book, (laughs) get all the other success factors into you and much, much more to truly successfully go global. Um, Natalie, where can people actually buy the book? So it's available online. If they go to my blog, borntobeglobal.com, there is a page called books. And if you click on that, it has a list of places where you can buy it online all around the world. Amazon carries it. All of the different country versions of Amazon have it now. And it's available from my book website as well. There's plenty of places to click on and, and find a copy. And if you want to get a flavor for Natalie and hear a little bit more from her, there are also plenty of opportunities to do that on um, the blog page. Natalie, before we come to a close, I would like to just delve into one short, I'm not sure if it's a short topic, but one more topic. I know that quite a few of the listeners out there ask themselves the question, where am I going to? What is my next step in my career and career doesn't mean in this case it has to be up a ladder of any shape or form it is about how am I going to make the next uh, take the next step now if I look at your bio and the roles that you have been accompanying the people that you have led globally the diversity in roles that you have had as well research translation marketing well how did you call it global expansion I mean, there's a lot in there. And I keep wondering, how do you make decisions about your own career steps? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I kind of, I have a passion for certain things and I align whatever job I have with my passions. I will say at each stage of my career, I'm looking for something slightly different. Like when I moved from the language industry and a research background into technology, that was very intentional. And one of the reasons was I saw the potential of technology to help connect people at scale. And one of the reasons I was always interested in languages before I got into technology was because languages unlock opportunities to connect people. And I thought if we can only overcome some of these language barriers, We can connect more people (laughs) all throughout the world. And now with technology, when I moved into technology, that was very intentional. I wanted to go into this. I I was passionate and interested in the SaaS business model, software as a service, because I thought it's much more accessible and makes it easier for anybody all over the world to access that type of software, that type of product, that type of service. 
So I think it's my passion for connecting people that has kind of led me to each different role that I've ever had. And with my move to Rebrandly, I was very intentional about wanting to impact the company's growth trajectory. I'm very interested in seeing number of customers multiply, revenue multiply, see those things grow, because that is ultimately a measure of impact. And that is also a measure of how many people can be connected through a given software platform, how many people are going to be connected through this particular company's mission. And I think that that is very important. And of course, with Rebrandly, it's a global company. It has an Irish office, which I love because I have a strong connection to Ireland. I love the Italy connection. I'm a Latin Americanist, but there's a lot of connections between Latin culture, Italian culture. I just, I find I can speak Spanish every time I go to Italy and people understand me (laughs) Um, and vice versa. I understand enough of Italian that we can all communicate. So I love, I love the company. I love the mission we're on you know, to abolish generic spammy links forever and give people a better option to do branded links and build relationships between brands and customers. So each time I've moved to a different company, there's been something about the mission that really attracts me, but it has to align with my core mission. And that's how I've basically chosen companies to work for, work with, help grow (laughs) at each stage of my career. I've never kind of had a career path that I wanted to unfold. For me, it's been much more opportunistic than that. You know, they say your career is never like a line from here to here. It's a zigzag and that's certainly been mine. So I don't have any specific advice other than follow your instinct, follow your passions, go after what you love. That's what I've always tried to do. And that's what I encourage others to do. It's the first question I ask in every job interview. When I'm interviewing a candidate, tell me what you love to do so much every day that you wish you could do nothing but that all day, every day. That usually gives me their passion and what they actually care about, or at least a clue as to how I can channel that passion into a job. And I also usually ask the question, what do you hate doing so much that you, if you could never do it again and somebody could magically take it off your plate forever, what is that? And usually that will tell me the things I should not have them focus on, but also the category of things that take their energy away and make them unhappy in their job. So I'm very much about aligning people's passions with their job. And I think it's what I've always tried to do. And that's what I try to do for anybody on my teams. And, you know, I think that's the way that we can make everybody happy at work, ultimately. (laughs) Natalie, I believe if you haven't, shared that in a book yet your next book should be all about how to ask the best questions during an interview onboarding process to build really trusting relationships with um, your employees and external customers as well because you brought up some real beautiful nuggets here that in all honesty we may not be thinking of when building relationships and yet they are so simple so simple, so human, and hopefully will make other people think to actually build that connection psychological safety as well at a very early stage, open up so that you can be a hugely productive unit. 
across boundaries. And, and, and I love that. Thank you. Thank you. I think the more we can take complex topics and try to keep them simple, the better. It's yeah. hard when it comes to things like the topics we're discussing today, you know, diversity, psychological safety, going global. All these are big, heavy topics for a lot of people. But at the end of it, I do feel there are some central truths and central kind of simple techniques that you can use to drive a good culture on your team, to drive a company toward the right outcomes. It doesn't have to be as hard as we think sometimes. And thank you so much for sharing some of those simple truths and questions with us, um, sharing all your experiences. And I can only highlight again, get the book, um, <laughs> look up the blog, and get in touch with Natalie. Natalie, you haven't offered it proactively if I'm going to offer it on your behalf. Get in touch. Talk to Natalie. Learn from and with her. And perhaps exchange your experiences as well. Thank you. And I don't want to be too promotional, but also check out Rebrandly, where I am working now, because we do have an incredible, incredible platform that connects companies to their customers through their brand and through their links and really provides that missing link, I think, between brands and their customers. So, and we have free products as well. So it's easy to sign up for free and get value from those. So yeah, I love, I love, uh, I love the mission that we're on. And I think it connects directly to the mission that I read about in the book. Thank you so, so much, Natalie. And I'm just going to say to everybody who has been with us here today, not just obviously share your questions and your feedback with us. Absolutely, that's a given. But what drives you? What are your passions that you can put into your next roles? How can you be an amazing or even more amazing global leader in this world? Um, I can't wait to hear from you, get uh, all your insights about it. Perhaps uh, you have even a few new ideas that we haven't spoken about here on the show. And the last thing, that I want to say is thank you, thank you, thank you for being on this show and being for being a fabulous guest, Natalie. It's been a pure joy to talk to you. Oh, thank you, Kathleen. My pleasure. You've been a wonderful host. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> same, same here. And perhaps we have another opportunity at a later stage. But take good care. And thank you again. Thank you for everybody for listening and speak to you very soon. Stay well. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Legendary Leaders podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then remember to subscribe to the show either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or my website, www.kathleenmerkel.com. I would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about, what topics really resonated with you, and how you're enjoying the show in general. Perhaps you have some ideas for additional topics, something that you're truly curious about. Please do leave your review on Apple Podcasts as well. It would mean the world to us. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time. Take good care. Bye.